Well, good morning. How are we doing today? We ready? Let me just say this. Um, Do you know how rare you guys are? And what I mean by that is, this is, a, this is an amazing church that we get to be a part of. And what, what Tony was just talking about with sending missionaries and impacting lives, the, the, and you guys feel the, the numbers and the growth, you're kind of squished in and probably had a hard time finding a parking space and all of that, but that, those are good problems, amen? And it is such an encouragement to be able to be a part of a a body of believers that is missional. We're doing something. We're making a difference. And so I just wanted to say thank you for being the church. You guys are so awesome. And it's an honor to to be a part of the leadership here. My name is Matt Ritchie, and I I get to share in place of Pastor Keith today. So I hope you're okay with being stuck with me. But we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1 once again. So you can go ahead and turn there. And to get us started, I just have a key question that I'd like to start off the morning with, and it's, and it's simply this. How can Jesus be our Lord if we have no real practical plan to follow in his footsteps? And I was thinking about the wording of this question as I was studying, and I think most of us have a plan to follow Jesus, or we, we are planning to follow Jesus. Tomorrow morning, we plan to follow in his footsteps again, but do we have a plan? Do we have a practical plan? And I'm not as organized or as intentional as I probably should be, and so this message is not just for you, it's for me too. So I hope you understand that I'm in the same boat. But to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about and get us started, I would like to just share a little bit of a personal experience. So any parents in here who have kids in sports or maybe music or something, they're performing, and okay. So my son started a upwards basketball a couple of weeks ago, and uh, anytime you have a, a, something new in your schedule or a new activity, it brings some new practice. It brings some new routines. And he's had some change in, changes in his life. So he's got new clothes. He's got a basketball uniform that he does not want to take off. Even when the game is over, he wants to stay in it all day. And in fact, last night he got a, got a shower, had his PJs on, went and put his dirty basketball uniform back on over his pajamas. <laughs> And he likes the number to be on the front. So he puts the, search, the, the, the jersey on backwards. And so he wants to see the big number eight there. And that's kind of like his new identity. He's number eight. And I told him, you know, number eight on his jersey, but number one in your hearts, you know, like, and so, and, and so he's got a new identity, quote unquote, with his new number. He's got a new coach. He's got, a, he's got new clothes. He's got, his coach is telling him what to do and where to go and and the instructions are mostly similar to what you might imagine as herding cats. Like, okay, we're gonna go over here and there's a clump of kids just following the basketball. And so, but it's actually pretty fun to watch and to see him learn and grow and kind of learn to interact with new teammates. He's got new friends. He's got a new group that he's working with and they're trying to work together to achieve a new goal. And at this stage, it's not about sportsmanship. It's not about good attitudes. It's about winning, amen? Like we're there to pound the other team into submission, okay? (laughs) Take no mercy, you know, run it up, let's go. Um, You wanna stop us, you you can't stop us, that's your fault. No, anyways, we haven't done a lot of winning yet. So um, (laughs) still waiting for that. But he did get the sportsmanship award yesterday. So, um, but he's got a new goal, he's got a new purpose and he's got all these little things that are new to him. And anytime we have, like I said, anytime we introduce something new into our life, it should, um, it should re- there should be a, a difference. There should be a change in our practice. 
Now, when it comes to our spiritual lives, I can't imagine a greater change than someone literally saying, you have a new life, an all-encompassing new life. In fact, in John 3, when Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night and he says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, you must be born again. And the implication is that you're not just having like a new, there's not a new activity in your life just in one area. This entire thing, your entire being, your entire life is changing. It's new birth. It's new life. And if we're going to experience that kind of transformation, and I trust most of us in this room have, if there's new life, there should be new practice. Simply put, our life after Jesus should look different from our life before Jesus, amen? And so how does that come to be? And, it, and I believe there's a process to it. I believe there's some time that, it, that is necessary for those differences to actually become more and more clear. But when we escape sin, when we escape our past and we, we have a new life, there should be a difference. And Pastor Keith, by the way, if you missed last week, he unpacked the verses immediately preceding the passage we're gonna study today. And he talked about escaping the corruption of sin, the, the corruption of evil. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because it does kind of set up where we're going to be at today. But the, the, the question again that I'm dealing with is do we have a practical plan to follow Jesus? And here's again, kind of another secondary question. Once we have victory, once we have power in our life, once we have this newness of life, how do we grow in that? How, do we, how does that enhance? How, does, how do we become stronger? And, and here's the reality. All of us understand that even after we come to Christ, there's still some things that are broken in our life. There's still some weaknesses in our life. We still don't know everything. There's some ignorance. Not, I'm not saying we're stupid, but compared to what God knows, if you compare that to what he knows and what we know, there's a big difference. We know a tiny little fraction compared to everything that he understands. And so because of that, we often make human error or, or mistakes. And even there's sin that sometimes still rears its head in our hearts and lives. And as Christians, we may wonder like, how did that happen? And what, what, can I, you know, what can I do different? And I don't think anyone would blame God for our sin and say, you, you obviously didn't save me enough or forgive me enough. And it's your fault that I still felt. But there's some areas in our life that we wonder like, it, there's still some weakness here. How can I deal with that? How should I deal with it? And I'm kind of giving away the answer before I get there, but there's this process of sanctification or what we say around here at Grace, we, we, we say it like this, it's becoming more and more like Jesus every day. And sometimes that process is slower than we'd like. But I believe that as part of that process, it's not God doing it all without our participation. There is a responsibility on our part to do the following. I'm reminded when Jesus came to the disciples and he said, you know, hey, follow me. What did they have to do? They had to drop their nets. There was a response. There was an action. There was an obedience. And so that's what we're talking about today. And I hope that I can make this clear and encouraging to you. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, this is the verses that we're talking about today. It says this in verse 5, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, we're gonna go through the list of those things, but I wanna pause here and I wanna say this, and this is kind of the first point. Salvation 
is more than forgiveness of sins. Salvation is new life. It's not just forgiveness, although that is a wonderful gift and that is an incredible thing that Christ offers us. And he does that for us. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't earn forgiveness ourselves. We can't pay or suffer enough to to earn that justification. He does it for us. But salvation is greater than just dealing with our past. It's again, it's our new life. And make no mistake, that faith, it says it's supplement your faith, but that faith is not something we got on our own. Remember Hebrews 2, or excuse me, 12 says this. It says, Jesus is the author of our faith. And so it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2 says that our faith is a gift from God. He begins the process of faith. He is the one who reveals himself to us. And when we see him and we begin to trust him and we begin to love him and understand more and more who he is, then there is a point where that faith, we can truthfully say it is our faith, but it's not something we manufactured all on our own. It's something that God has given to us. But yet there is responsibility. Once we have a view of Christ, once we have a relationship with him, it's just like what he said to the disciples. We are called to follow him. And we say the, the phrase, take, taking our next steps around here a lot to the point where you might be sick and tired of hearing it sometimes. And it seems like a cliche, but I really do believe, we really do believe that there is a responsibility on our part to, to follow Jesus, to, to take our next steps with him. Now, um, you guys have probably got a smartphone or a laptop. Anybody do uh, some downloading of software on a device? You're familiar with that process. It takes longer than you want it to and you're just like, okay, come on, let's go. But what good does the app or the software, what good is it if you don't use it? Um, I recently um, have tried to use a, a budgeting app on my phone and, and it, there's a, a tool on my laptop that I can kind of log into the same account and it does no good if I don't actually use it. I can download it and it can be there on my phone and my computer, but if I don't look at it and if I don't open it, if I don't put it into practice, it does no good. My wife and I recently discovered this when we had a discussion about our finances. Anybody? <laughs> Have that similar discussion? Okay, so like when you discuss finances with your spouse, there may or may, I don't know if your marriage is like this, but there could be at times small disagreements once in a while. But one, one of the things my wife and I discovered is that like when it comes to tracking what we spend, we actually have to use the tools that we've put in place to track our spending. If you say, hey, we're gonna use this application to track our spending, we're gonna, this, uh, the app that I have links to your bank account and like, like there's just Target, like Target, 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 <laughs> Target, 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 Target. If you wanna know how much you spent on Target, you can just go and look. But if you, I'm, okay, that was too far. Okay, I apologize. <laughs> there's some fly fishing stuff in there too, I promise you, okay? But the point is we have to use, use it for it to actually be beneficial to us. And there are times I think that we as Christians, we have this concept that the, the, the spirit of Christ, the, the power of Christ has been quote unquote downloaded into our life, but we don't have to do anything. And we understand this when we 
download, quote unquote, Christ into our life, we, not, we don't become perfect Christian robots that do the right thing all the time. We're not perfect. There's still a human element that's a part of our being and, and we still have a will. We still retain um, what knowledge we have. And we, we, we do our best, I believe, most of the time, but there is still a process, I believe, that helps us grow and, and unlocks power and freedom in our life. And it takes, it takes discipline, it takes effort. It, there's responsibility. And so that's the second point is that this new life that we have in Christ, it's not just spiritual, but it's actually practical and it's physical, it's, it's tangible. There's practical response, there's action in the real world in real time that we can do to better align ourselves with Jesus himself. So what is our plan? What are we doing? Are we just kind of flying by the seat of our pants or are we, do we, are we being intentional about it? Dallas Willard wrote a book called um, The Spiritual Disciplines and in that book, he used um, the picture of an athlete or a musician much, much like I did at the beginning of the message where he said, do you think an athlete, once he steps on the field, has he prepared for that moment? You know, we're in the playoffs and so, you know, there's these games going on. Trust me, those athletes didn't just wake up last week and go, you know what, I think I'm gonna play in the, uh, the, 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 the playoffs next week. No, they've been planning it literally for a lifetime. They're in the gym, they're working out, they're, they're studying a playbook, they're, they're preparing, and that's why you and I are not in the playoffs because we haven't done one single thing to be there. And so when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to when we're confronted with, with temptation or sin or things that have kind of plagued us in the past, the enemy doesn't just give up on us. Oh, they're a Christian now. I'm not gonna bother them anymore. No, he is still actively searching us out. And, and we need to be prepared for those moments. And so how do we prepare? I believe Peter gives us some insight into this with the rest of that verse. Guys, I know I'm a little bit out of order on the slides, but if you would go back to 2 Peter 1 through 5, or excuse me, 1, 5 through 7. And it, it says this, and it says, for every reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And I'd like to just take some time and break down each of these words just briefly. First of all, we have virtue. And I think on the surface, most of us go, well, I, I know what virtue is, but I wanna press into it a little bit because it's not just being good, it is, it is the highest moral excellence. Honor might be another word to, to use here. And, and I wanna just say this too, that the fact that virtue exists, the fact that a moral law exists is actually, in my opinion, a very clear evidence that there is a God. And so if you're ever wanting to understand, like, you know, better defend your faith, and maybe there's a person that asks, like, why do you believe in God? Here's a good answer is that there is a moral law and that implies that there must be a moral law giver. 
You see, when we go to all the corners of the earth, it could be the most remote civilization that has no outside influence from Western culture or, or wherever, they still believe that murder is wrong. They still believe that harming uh, others is wrong. They believe theft and lying is wrong. And there's a code, there's a code of sorts or an understanding of right and wrong, even in the most remote parts of the world. And actually these things are universal from culture to culture. Without any cross interaction, these, these laws, these morals are clearly understood. And I can't help but think that this is exactly what Jeremiah and Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is talking about when it says this, and God says this to us through those two books. It says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And all of us have an understanding of right and wrong. And I believe this morning that that comes from the moral law giver. I attribute that to God and his goodness. But the bottom line is we have a basic understanding of what right and wrong is. And God has called every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus to commit to living in a way that is morally excellent. And I realize that that's kind of a no brainer. Most of us understand, yeah, if I'm gonna be a Christian, that generally means I should be a good person. Christians don't get to steal, murder, lie, cheat, all, the, all those things. And we, the starting point of this list is, yes, you come to Christ, supplement your faith with a commitment to live honorably, to live virtuously. The second piece of this is to expand your knowledge. And this is specifically, um, if you study the word there that's used in the Greek, it's specifically connected to spiritual understanding. In other words, we are called not to just have a basic understanding of right and wrong, but to have a deeper understanding of even the nuances of some of the social tensions in our world and understanding how to apply scripture to things that maybe aren't explicitly lived out or, or called out in scripture. Like for example, TikTok and social media isn't addressed in the Psalms or Romans, okay? And so, but I do believe there should be parameters around screen time and phone usage and certain apps and entertainment and music. And there's not, there's no like verse that says, thou shalt not have Snapchat. Now I would wish that as a youth pastor, but I can't quote that to the teens in our student ministry. But I, I am also called to try to help them understand principles about being careful with what they put in their mind and, and in their hearts. And so as Christians, we are called to expand our knowledge. And, and this is also includes knowing God rightly, knowing God correctly. So often we project things onto God or characteristics onto God that are, are not who he is at all. Pastor Keith has talked about this before. Sometimes when we have um, experiences in our past or even in our childhood, maybe we had a, a father that was distant or unengaged with us. And so it's easy to project that onto God when we hear him addressed as father. And we, without even realizing it, we begin to think of him as being distant, just like our earthly father was. And so we need to understand that as we read scripture, it's, it's not just about figuring out what is right and wrong, but it's knowing God rightly, understanding who he truly is. And that will lead us to a place of confidence. And then the second, or excuse me, the third word there is self-control. This is where Peter addresses, hey, there's some natural desires 
that are maybe even rooted in good things, but you need to be careful about letting your human or fleshly desires take too much control. Now, I, I, I like food, I like to eat. In fact, at the dinner table last night, we got into a discussion with our family and we were kind of saying, what's your favorite food? And my wife said she likes Mexican food and my kids, um, my six-year-old daughter said her favorite root, uh, food was ribs. And so I was like, oh, my daughter's uh, following after my own heart. And so, um, and then it came to me and they said, and I said, well, kids, what do you think my favorite food is? And they said, everything, everything is your favorite food. <laughs> and so I couldn't really deny that, okay? But there, and we need food to, to survive, obviously, but I can't let food take control of me. And so uh, there's a practice that's talked about in scripture of fasting. And it may not just be fast of food, but it may be a fast of entertainment where we, where we intentionally push something away that may not even be sinful, but we intentionally push it away for a season to work on this idea of self-control. And obviously we should push away things that are unhealthy and sinful, but there are maybe times where we push away things that they're just really important to us. They may be good, they may be even be necessary, but we take some time to work on our self-control. And here's the thing, here's the reason why, is because just because we know something is wrong doesn't mean we won't do it. How often has the most educated person in a field messed up in the very field? Pa pastors, has there ever been a pastor that's failed? Who knows better? It's probably the pastors. And, I, and I'm, this is a warning to myself. Just because I know what right and wrong is doesn't mean that I can just sit back and do nothing. How many times has a police officer committed a crime or a judge broken a law? There's experts in the field and they actually fail in the very field in which they are experts. And so knowledge doesn't automatically lead to right practice. It's, it's the willingness, it's the fortitude, it's, it's the backbone to, to say, I am going to exercise self-control. Often our problem isn't ignorance. We often know the right decision, not always, but there's a lot of times where we know the right thing to do, but it's just difficult for us. And so we just don't do it. Peter says to supplement our faith with self-control, we need to exercise the art of mastering our desires. This leads to steadfastness, patient, enduring. You know, as our virtue and knowledge and self-control, as they continue to grow, our consistency over time will result in strength. You know, um, I was, anybody, any gym goers? Anybody go to the gym? How many of you started this month? Okay, be honest. <laughs> How many of you going to be done in two months? Okay, like, so I started the week before January 1st, so I'm not in your group. I am, I... <laughs> So, but a couple of guys from the church, they got me going to this class and uh, I don't know what, what I'm doing there, but anyways, I'm doing my best. And uh, the, the guy leading the class, um, he uh, showed us a video of a friend of his who was a strong man and the guy um, came on the video and he took a hammer and a frying pan and he tapped the frying pan with a hammer to show that it was really uh, metal. And then he proceeded with his bare hands to roll the frying pan up like a newspaper. And I was like, is that what we're doing today? Like, cause 
I'm in the wrong class. <laughs> like, uh, where's the other one? Like the, um, so, but we were like, he was like, why do you think I showed you this? And we're like, we have really no idea. You need to explain this. And he was like, well, here's what I'm showing it for. He's like, do you think that he started rolling a frying pan? Like just, he just woke up one day and was like, I'm gonna roll a frying pan. <laughs> no, he started with a newspaper. And then he went to a magazine and then he went to two magazines and then he just kept building up the, the tension or the resistance and he made it harder and harder, but it was incremental small steps. And he eventually over time, a, a, a long period of time, actually got the ability to roll a frying pan like a newspaper. But he didn't do that on day one. And the the guy leading the class, he gave us the second example. He said, you know, could you rip a deck of cards in half? No, I could not do that. But I could rip one card in half and maybe two. And over time, maybe I had three or four and I work up over a few weeks to maybe 10 or 15. And eventually the more and more you exercise those muscles, the stronger you will get. And we understand this principle in life, but I really believe that it's also a principle in our spiritual walk. We need to start small. We can't climb the mountain in one leap, but we need to take that incremental next step. And so this steadfastness is a key part of growing in our faith. It builds up strength. Some of you may be sitting here wondering, there's a place in, maybe in your life where you continually fail and you beat yourself up about it. And you, you're like, why am I here again? First of all, you're not alone. The children of Israel did this over and over again. They made the same mistakes over and over and over again. And God still loved them through it and God still walked with them through it. And God doesn't abandon you when you go through those cycles. But I believe that he has called us to live for something greater than just ups and downs. I believe that there should be, maybe there are some peaks and valleys, but they're going on a trajectory and we're, we're actually growing. We're becoming more and more free. We're becoming more and more like Christ. And I really believe that he does not want us to live in a state of perpetual failure. Everything I read about the gospel is that he grants us new life. In fact, Jesus says, I came to give you life abundant. And because he promises us that, and we read here that there is some responsibility on, on our part, I can't help but think it's not God, it's us. We need to be taking those steps. The next word there is he calls us to supplement our faith with is godliness. And on the surface, it might look like that this is the same word as virtue. But as I studied it, I, I, I began to realize that it is, is something different entirely. In fact, literally in the Greek, it means to have reverence or piety towards God. Maybe another word could be respect. And the thought came to me is that as we understand right and wrong at, at a greater detail. As we continue to expand our knowledge, as we exercise self-control, and as we get stronger and steadfast over time, the response is my desires, my heart, my face, our hearts will become turned more and more towards him. It'll be easier to love the things that God loves. It'll be easier to desire the things that he desires, to value what he values. And the response is simply worship. To, to, it's gratitude, it's, it's saying, God, thank you for who you are, what you have done in my life. And that will begin to flow out of us. Have you ever met somebody that you might describe as a life-giving? 
They walk into a room and they don't even have to say much, but you just feel lifted when you're in the room with them. And you can't even really put your finger on it, but out of them is flowing a Christ-likeness, a godliness that encourages you. And, and when I'm in the room with those kinds of people, there's a part of me that goes, I want what they have. I want more of what they have. And it's because they're exercising these things. And then I believe that this is connected to it. The next word is brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Now this is, if I were to describe this, I would say it's treating others around you as family. And if you love God, you will love others. If your face is turned towards him, you will love the people that he loves as well. And as you might expect, the original word here in the Greek is the same word from which we, which we get the name of the city of Philadelphia. Now, aside from cheesesteak, and as I was reminded earlier, a good football team, what are, what are they kind of known for? What do we call the city, the, the city of brotherly love? Now, somebody that grew up there told me that they questioned whether that was actually true, but like, the point is that's what we know, that's what the word means. It literally means to have affection or kindness to people around us. And as a student pastor, I would tell you that, yes, there have been times where teens have asked to live with me, okay? I don't know why. Maybe it's because my wife's a good cook. I don't know. But once in a while, somebody will ask to live with me. And there are times when we should reach out and help those in need around us. But exercise wisdom. You don't have to let people live with you, okay? Okay, but there are people that are broken in this life and we see them on the side of the street and we see that they're in need. And so often I find myself kind of with blinders on. Do you think this world needs you and I to have our eyes more open to the needs around us? And we don't have to do any grand kind of giving or gesture, but maybe it's simply opening a door. Maybe it's simply stopping to make sure their car's running or not or okay and maybe it's helping with carrying some boxes or what have you but I really do believe that we are called to have brotherly affection even with people we don't know and to treat them as if they're family again with wisdom and all of those things but I wanted to just give some honor to where honor is due and one of the best examples of this one of the people in my life that just I think does this so well is one of our staff members, Will Sprunt. And if you know Will, he will give you just about anything. He's get, let me borrow his truck. He's, I think I've refused most of his help because I'm a prideful person. But um, I mean, he's, he will literally give you the shirt off his back if you need it. I've seen him help people move. I've seen him, again, lend his truck. I've seen him take people to the airport. Even little things like we'll be sitting in the office and someone will come in and they'll open the door and they're struggling with a load of boxes or something. And he's always the first to jump out of his chair to go and help and open the door or carry the boxes or whatever. And I'm sitting there looking like an idiot because I was like too oblivious to know what was happening. And so, first of all, I wanna thank Will for being an example of this. Now, don't go to him after the service and start asking him for stuff, okay? Like, <laughs> but I think he's a good example of what Christ has called us to be, to show others around us brotherly, brotherly affection. And then that leads us to, and then to show love. And love 
especially in our age, is I think the meaning of this word has become twisted. This is not erotic love or self-fulfilling love. This is unconditional kindness. And it's human nature to only love those people around us who love us back or to only be kind to those who are kind to us. But I think we would all agree that this world needs people to be salt and light, to be loving, to be kind, even when it is not reciprocated. I was listening to an audiobook um, recently, and there was a story in the last chapter that talked about a, a town in France, and the name of the town escapes me. It's a French name <clears throat> that I can't pronounce anyways, but this town was um, very active during World War II in the protection and the, the smuggling of Jews out of Nazi-controlled areas into areas of safety. And there was a pastor that did a lot of the work and he told his congregation that they were gonna oppose evil, but they were gonna do so without hate. They weren't going to let the pendulum swing against their enemies and they weren't gonna treat their enemies with hate. And the book didn't come out and say this explicitly, but I couldn't help but wonder because one of the things that was evident is that the Germans stopped giving so much attention to this town. They basically let them um, do whatever they wanted. They had a school uh, for kids that went, the enrollment went from 18 before World War II. And there were so many Jews that moved into this area because it was a safe place that the enrollment of kids went up to like over 350. And it was no secret that the influx was due to the Jews, the Jewish people moving into that area. And the Germans knew it, but they didn't do anything about it. And I'm, I couldn't help but wonder if it wasn't because the people that were actively involved, they weren't acting out in hate. They were doing it. They were doing what they were called to do as best that they could do it, but they were doing so without hating their enemies. And I really do believe that the world, when they see us, even when we're quote unquote opposed to their ideals, if they see us do it without hate, I believe that it will only enhance our influence as a church. And this is what Peter has called us to, and I believe God has called us to. So I'm, I'm gonna transition though to kind of the heart of the message. And I wanna finish our reading in Second Peter. I'm gonna start in verse eight and go through verse nine. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to be effective. I want to be fruitful. I want my life to count for something. I want to make a difference. But that's only gonna be possible if I'm free enough to actually participate in what God wants to do. And it goes on in verse nine, it says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So like Pastor Keech just talked about last week, here's how to escape corruption. How tragic would it be to experience a, a, the great escape and then do nothing with that freedom and to just live our lives in anonymity or not be effective and see, following Jesus doesn't happen by chance or accident. Making this kind of difference that he calls us to doesn't happen by chance or accident. It only happens through intentional effort. And I really believe spiritual freedom, health, growth, and however you wanna think of it, it has a specific path. It has a specific destination. 
That's why Jesus says that this pathway, it's not broad, it's narrow. And sometimes it might even feel rocky or dark, but it's a path that leads to something greater than we could ever get on our own. And I don't want to be confusing here. And I wanna say this, and I, I, I wanna be very clear. I'm not talking about earning our justification or earning our forgiveness or earning our good standing in God's eyes. This is not a work-based religion. This is a relationship. But once we have new life, again, Christ has forgiven us. We did not do anything to deserve it. He has set us free. We did not do anything to earn it. He has given us new life. We cannot be raised up to new life in and of our own strength. Only he can do that. But once we have this newness of life, we have a responsibility to follow. Here's an old song that says, trust and obey for there's no other way. Now, again, I wanna remind you that Christ is the one enabling us to, to obey, to follow, to walk with him. He gives us the desires, even the ability to do it, but, we, but nobody gets closer to Jesus. Nobody experiences greater freedom and power and strength in their spiritual heart and life just by sitting around eating Cheetos. It doesn't happen automatically. We need to have a plan. We need to be intentional about it. In this process that I'm talking about, the scripture calls it sanctification. And I said this earlier, that it's the process of becoming more and more like Christ every single day. And again, I'm gonna come back to my question. We all have plans to do something. Do you have a practical plan in place to become more and more like Christ each and every day? Do you have that plan? You see, here's the reality. And, and Jocko Willick, and I'm not sure of all of his qualifications. He's a former Navy SEAL, and I'm not sure he's a Christian, but I believe all God's truth is God's truth. And I think he stumbled onto what James says in chapter one. But Jocko says this, he says, he has a podcast and a book, and I'm not sure, and I haven't read it. But he says this, discipline equals freedom. Discipline equals freedom. And when I read that, or I heard that for the first time, like it intrigued me because this is a spiritual principle. This is a concept straight from scripture. And the world, the, the message of the world might be like, hey, you want more time? You gotta get up earlier. You want more money? You gotta work harder. You wanna, have, you wanna be better in shape physically? You better, you better put some effort into it. And so, yes, there are some things that I believe that even in the physical, they're good to do. But spiritually speaking, I believe this is true. Our disciplines lead us to freedom. In fact, we have a whole department here called the discipleship department. And this word discipline and, and the word discipleship are related because this is about disciplining ourselves to become more and more like Christ. And there's been some people in my life that I've looked at them and to me, they're spiritual giants. They're, they're prayer warriors, they have confidence, they, they're with, they've been able to withstand some incredible um, heartache in their life, and, but they do things differently. And anytime you meet somebody who is close to God and they have this relationship with him that is close and vibrant and life-giving and strong, and you look at them and you say, I wish I had more of what they have, we have to be willing to be honest with ourselves, but 
and ask us, ourselves this question, are we willing to do what they do? Now, I'm not a morning person. I will tell you that, okay? I have no problem admitting, admitting that. But I have to admit there is something about starting your day with time with God. You, I don't think there's any, I think you can be a Christian and pray at lunchtime, okay? Or you can pray in the evening. I'm not saying you, it, it, to do this, to be a Christian, you have to pray in the morning. But there is something about the discipline of getting up early. In fact, Jesus did it himself. It says in the scriptures that even before it was light, he would get up and he would spend time. When we look at people who have this spiritual strength, are we willing to do what they do? Let me quickly close. James 1, through 25 says this, it'll be on the screen. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once forgets what he was like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty or the law of freedom and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Jesus, while he was here on earth, did not give up one sense of his Godness. He was fully God and fully man, but he disciplined himself. There were times where he gave up sleep he spent time alone in solitude. What was the first thing he did before he started his ministry? He went into the desert to fast and to pray. He read the word. The scriptures talk about how he went up to the synagogue as was his custom. He served, he got on his knees and served others. He prayed. If anybody can skip prayer, it'd probably be Jesus, but yet he made it a practice. And so if he is putting these things into practice, if he's putting disciplines into his life, how much more should we be putting those same things into practice? Do, if we wanna follow Jesus, a very simple thing to do is just to look at what he did and do our best to align our lives with the same kind of things. Does that make sense? I could talk about this for another hour, but we are out of time. So I'm gonna wrap it up there. Um, please come back next week. Pastor Keith's gonna talk about the stability that comes as a result of supplementing our faith. If you want stability in your life, come back next week and hear what Pastor Keith has to say. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and Lord, how you lead us. I pray uh, over the words that I've spoken, Lord, I pray that everyone here would not just take my word for it, but they would look to you and look to you alone and your word alone um, for direction and guidance in these areas. Lord, I am flawed. I don't say everything perfect, but Lord, I pray that you would speak to each heart um, and speak truth to each heart. And Lord, help us to have the fortitude to take our next steps, to grow stronger and more free and uh, grow in the abundant life that you you have offered us. We pray these things in your name, amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand if you would like to pray with someone. If you have some questions, there's gonna be some people down front to, to connect with you. Um, take note, prayer and praise is Tuesday at 6.30. That's uh, one thing that I love about our church is the prayer and praise nights. So take advantage of that. With that, you are dismissed. Have a great rest of the day.